0: I mean, it seems like the kind of thing that some publicly-minded theologians should be talking more about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She just told us our business, and that is awesome.
2: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. Uh, My name is Derek Reshmaoui, and I'm joined by most of the cast and crew, Matt Lee Anderson, Andrew Wilson, and uh, today we have a special guest and friend on, uh, Dr. Diane Schanzenbach. She's a professor at Northwestern and the director for the Institute for Policy Research. She works in economics, and she's on the show today to talk about a special issue. So welcome to the show, Diane. Thanks for having me. Also, she goes to my church, which is pretty cool, too. So uh, that's how we know her. But she's on because today we want to talk about uh, an issue that's been in the news in the last couple weeks. Um, and really for a while now, that, that that Tucker Carlson monologue a few weeks ago on the family and uh, the economy that kind of went vir- viral. The family and the market went viral a couple weeks ago and caused a bunch of discussion online, uh, among conservative circles, liberal circles, et cetera, uh, it provoked a discussion around um, just the state of the working class family and the role of economic policy and the role of the elites. And there was an article. We don't really want to talk about Carlson's monologue so much as the the follow-up article by uh, Bradford Wilcox and Susan Hammond at The Atlantic talking about what Tucker Carlson gets right. We'll have both of these links up in the show notes. Um but the argument has to do with the way market conditions, economic conditions, the role of the elites has, in a sense, eroded uh, family life and eroded uh, basic communal life for the working class, and the repercussions that it has throughout our economy. So, with that, we wanted to just bring Diane on and, and ask her about that because, well, you you know you know all about the the actual economics of. The situation so just wanted to ask you are they right <laughs> and, what's going you know, on that's what, right what's going on that's kind of you know, are they right what 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 are some of the kind of break down some of those causes and some of those uh trends for us and then and then we'll get going from there
0: right absolutely so i think one of the most important social issues actually two of them are bundled up that we need to talk about today the first is the fact that um, many many fewer american men uh, in prime age, which is between 25 and 54. So, you know, when men typically, when people typically are employed, many fewer of men are working today than worked, uh, 50 years ago. So about 50 years ago, um, almost all prime age men were productively engaged in employment, about 95% of men worked in the 1960s. And that has been slowly and steadily declining uh, in the United States, um, there's always a, you know, little bit of up and down when there's a recession, more men are unemployed, when there's, you know, good boom times like we're having right now, um it goes back up, but what you can see is there's a, a steady secular decline in the share of men working. From an economic perspective, that's been offset somewhat because women have come into the labor market and that was, you know, offsetting men's decline for quite some time. But you know that opens a whole host of, of other issues. You know, so now we have more um, you know, couples where both people are working, um, you know, et cetera. And so we can think about what this means for um, the men who are not working. Also, what it's um, done for family structure. And then sort of later on, I hope we can turn to what we think we can do about this because that's a that's one of the thorniest questions out there. Yeah.
1: Diane, can I ask about that? Um- With the the secular decline, the decline of men in the workforce, I've seen stories here and there about the effects of video gaming, particularly on the younger side of that cohort. And um, some correlations actually between um, video games and and, uh, lower participation in the workforce by young males. Um, How much... How much of the decline of men in the workforce uh, is attributable to things like video games um, and how much of it is attributable, attributable to sort of broader causal forces like jobs being outsourced to China, right? In one sense, how much of it is voluntary commitments because they're just too busy being entertained by other things and how much of it is uh, there just aren't jobs,
0: Sure. So, you know, this is something that we're still trying to sort out in the academic literature. But I think most people have come to the agreement that most of it is uh, what we would call demand side factors. So that's the outsourcing of jobs. That's the decline in manufacturing. That's just the fact that we've gotten much more efficient with our production. And so we use more robots and we need fewer people. So we think that most of it is demand side, but then your question also you know, brings in what we call the supply side. So are people not wanting to work? Um, perhaps because you know television's gotten better or video games have gotten better. Um, there's definitely evidence that especially young men who are not working are spending a lot of their time playing video games and watching television and things like that. We also, the evidence finds that that you know, they're not happy doing that, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? We think uh, that we were created to be, you know, engaged in work of some sort, and we can talk about that's not always employment, but you know, we were made to, you know, productively engage in our communities, and by and large, we think video gaming and watching TV doesn't do that, you know. So we <laughs> see that they're doing a lot of that. They're unhappy while they're doing it, um, but. I think, you know, for a while there was this provocative theory out there that um, actually video games are causing men to drop out of the labor force. And I think most people have found that that one has been discredited, The you know, it's really the other way, that it's, it's the demand side factors, the lack of jobs that have, have pushed the men out.
1: I think that most of our audience uh, probably doesn't play video games, um, would be my suspicion. Um, but I'm sure there are a few who are very glad to hear <laughs> that they are not
0: to well, blame Well, you're welcome Trump. to come, uh, our family does we Party, uh, which is like a, a video game uh, pretty much every Friday night. You're welcome to come over anytime and uh, hang out with the <laughs> nice. Johnson box. Yes, there we go. that's what I wanted. <laughs> Derek, you haven't invited
1: me over. We have your friend on and all of a sudden I get a and then invite you, over. This, but you have
2: <laughs> wow, we'll just leave that. There that's cuz she does not as well.
3: Can I ask a nerdy statistical question? You, you mentioned earlier that um the male employment was about 95% when I can't even remember the baseline date you gave but 60 70 years ago or equivalent I guess.
0: What's it now? Uh, so right now it's about 88% are working and So there's twice if- as
3: many unemployed males of that age age group as there were as a percentage of people, more than twice as many that's that's the challenge you're highlighting right
0: that's right that's right and if the trends continue uh by the year 2050 one out of every four men will not be employed and that is a Whoa. staggering number right
3: and is that wow. what's driving that additional so i can see why you would get a and this is ignorance here right rather than i'm not this isn't pushback this is just idiocy on my end um but i can see why you would with a rapid influx of women into the workforce why you would see a big a big spike obviously in female employment and a corresponding drop in male employment because there's a roughly equivalent number of jobs but the, the women are joining the workforce faster than than the than the economy is growing and therefore you would expect the number of men to drop off but why is that continued and why is it expected to continue diminishing uh, why didn't it sort of why hasn't it come in a bit more of a sort of you know, generational rush, and then sort of settle down a bit? Why is that? Is that because you're still there's still a huge number of women who are anticipated to join the workforce now? Is it because the economy is not going as fast as people thought it would? What's behind that pred- that prediction?
0: Sure. Those are great questions. So these are all long-term trends. You know, so we're not talking about, you know, sort of the, even, you know, the legacy of the Great Recession and its aftermath. And now we're sort of finally pulled back out of that. And in fact, starting in the year 2000, women's labor force participation has started to decline as well in the United States. Just fewer and fewer people overall are employed. But really, we do think that, well, so for one, with men, this is an international phenomenon. You know, Every industrialized country, all of the OECD countries, Japan, et cetera, um, are seeing similar declines in men's employment, but in the United States, ours is going much, much more quickly. And so that's, uh, you know, uh, something to you know that raises concerns to us and again we think that the the reason for this is because because of automation right because we've gotten so good right if you go into a warehouse today and compare it to what it must have looked like 30 years ago you know today there are many more machines doing sorting doing you know all sorts of things that used to have to be people and now it's not people anymore and so that's done all sorts of good for our economy it's driven down prices its expanded capacity but one of the downsides is it means that we need fewer people to to do these jobs.
3: Right. So it's ba- it's basically a, a a fusion of three three factors. It sounds like you have sort of globalization, automation, and an inc- and a far more egalitarian gender spread in the work workforce. Those three things together are driving it. Obviously, two of those factors drive employment down generally, and one drives male employment down more than uh, more That's than right. female. So it, it, is that in terms of like why we're here? I know we're going to spend most of the conversation talking about what problems that causes and what might be done to mitigate them but that's just helpful to clarify what that yeah what's behind i think it, you've so got that. it right yeah. that's right and
2: just to one more clarifying um so this is we're, we're talking mostly um skilled labor in the sense of uh, middle, middle class skilled labor not so much knowledge economy kind of white collar work
0: right? that's right that's right you know so it um, we've seen declines everywhere. The declines are certainly the softest for people who have bachelor's degrees or higher. That's also the only place where we're seeing wage growth in the economy. But it's really, yeah. those, um some college, um, high school only, um, you may not know this, but there are many fewer high school dropouts in the economy today than there were 30 years ago. And, uh, people have gotten yeah. the news that you need to finish high school. Uh, but certainly um, the high school dropouts have just been hammered. In terms of yeah uh, of their economic participation
2: as well. So, Diane, let me ask you. Um, we talked a little bit about this before, uh, but you know the article points to a few of the bad things that are uh, flow from this. But let me ask you: Why does this, why does this why does this worry you? <laughs> what are some of the repercussions you're worried about down the road? Um, oh, just in terms. But like, or that are that right now you think are the most significant, uh, the most significant, most significant fallout of of trends as they currently are, as well as uh, where they where they could be going. Like, what, what are the two or three things that you're like, okay, this is this is why this is, and yeah.
0: Sure, I think the two biggies, the two biggies are. Um, First, you know what is happening to families as a result of this—families, marriages, children, etc.—and then second is what's happening to the you know the human flourishing of people who are you know then making these choices. Like we said before, you know they seem to be depressed. They're playing video games. They're watching television. You know, by and large, when men drop out of the labor force, they do different things than women, right? So a lot of times when women are not employed. They're doing things that are what we would agree are productive for society. They're, you know, they're raising children. They're, um, you know, taking care of grandchildren, you know, whatever that looks like. And we're seeing a tiny bit of increase in men participating in those activities, but those are still, that's still just a very small um, share of the fraction of people who have, who are not employed. They are by and large, you know, you know, sitting idle. Now, many of them, I will also say, um, especially the older individuals um are sitting idle and also in pain they're injured they've got you know partial disability something like that. And so that's a little bit of a thornier case but um you know but by and large you know we do you know we do think that we were made to work you know in, in the garden and you know, everything right um yes and if we're not doing that all sorts of bad will flow.
1: Mm. Diane, this is—I I won't lie—that um, this feels very bleak. Um, <laughs> I, I am an that, economist. Like, <laughs> that
0: is—that's—that is what we do, right? Sorry, yeah. it's, it's the, the dismal, it's science. dismal science. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: I mean, um, it does—it does feel just a little like uh, America is ruined. I—I—I um, I, I don't know if you saw. Uh, ben Sass's book, uh, Senator from Oklahoma, uh, which uh, is Nebraska.
0: T- a, a, Nebraska. I'm so sorry. College friend of mine. So, oh, of I, mine. so yes, I've read uh, his book.
1: Oh,
2: Fly oh over interesting. over country to Matt.
1: Um, I,
0: I can't yes. believe I just got
1: the wrong state. And I'm going to hear about that from all my Nebraska For friends. Jake Meador. Jake
2: so Meador, the editor oh, no. of our oh, – whatever. Keep going. Uh, Amer- Keep
1: going. Yeah. So um, – Senator Sass's book, which you've read, and he's a college friend of yours. So um, uh, what, I reviewed it at the Gospel Coalition, and one of the things that uh, I noted there was the total absence of any kind of reflection on the church's position on both sides of this problem. Uh, the church's position in um, maybe contributing to the the kinds of conditions by that we're seeing now, perhaps by not having appropriate theologies of work. But also there was almost nothing about the place of uh, distinctively religious communities as responding to some of these challenges around work and isolation uh, that you're talking about. Um, as an economist, do you... Is there a religious dimension to this story about globalization and automation and all of these things? Is or is is it really just that like the church has a, a spiritual and therapeutic task to counsel people in their uh, the bleakness of their despair, which I am currently in, thanks to you? <laughs>
2: Matt just welcoming our our
1: guests. Just always. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I, I like to be honest.
0: Uh, yes, well, that's, these are great. These are great questions. No, do I think there uh, that um, that the church should be involved in high level economic policy regarding you know trade and things like that? No, probably not. You know, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, you know, that said, I do think that uh, that there's an important role in. You advocating for, you know, for 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 these these aspects um, of you know that it's important for people to have the opportunity to work. You know, so I I do think that there's some some sophisticated policy work that can be done. And I also, uh, you know, would push you all. This is sort of why I've been bugging Derek about this for so many months. uh, That more Mm -hmm. theological work does need to be be done in this. I think that. Um, This is a, you know, a slowly unfolding crisis and we haven't really heard the church talk about it. You know, Tim Keller wrote a nice book on, on work, um, you know, every good endeavor, but there's much more to be said about, you know, what it looks like to be fully human when work is disappearing. You know, so in particular, what can the church do? You certainly, you know, um, one thing that people can do to provide you know, meaningful work to their life, even if they're not employed, is you know, becoming involved in their community. And so, the, you know, there's tutoring and there's soup kitchens and there's, you know, all sorts of uh, sorts of opportunities like that. And I would encourage the church to keep its eyes open for that and make sure that um, the people are having the opportunity to to perform work with dignity, even when they're not employed
2: yeah that 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 just roses i so I read a r- recent piece uh by tim Carney. um i can't remember where it was or uh, what 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 provoked it, but he was just talking about the uh differences in in different kinds of uh, communities where uh religion um, was you know practiced more in terms of of communal involvement and one of the things it was it was just saying was was the was the social trust matter uh communities with high social trust and low social trust, that just the impact of some of these, uh, situations, some of these policies and some of these trends was just highly minimized. And so, um, the way churches and church attendance and service oriented, um, involvement in, in encouraging, encouraging folks to be involved with their neighbors was, um, was huge for still cultivating the kind of social trust that is constructive, even when people are going through uh, hardship, so that there's still there's still meaning and there's still um, it, well, it's not as bleak uh, even when you're out of work. So that that just that, I mean, that it seems like the as
0: kind as well. of thing that some publicly minded theologians should be talking more about.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she just told us she, our
2: man, business we, and that is man, awesome she
1: is just <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dan and I see. guess that's what we do um, yeah
3: <laughs> can, can I can I ask Dan you, I mean this is just something that's I mean I'm just fascinated by this because it's something I guess five years ago, i don't know i was maybe not anymore but perhaps should be economist subscriber and we'll remember the first time i read i think it was probably driverless cars It was probably more than five years ago but the first time i read a piece that exposed to me quite how many of the jobs done by people in my church were going to be probably taken away within my lifetime and it and I think they even had a matrix of how likely that was for particular kinds of career um and I remember thinking to myself i it flashing through my mind oh well the kind of job I do is going to be fine and then momentarily sitting back in my seat and going oh that's okay then because obviously the kind of job I do would never be done by a robot and then thinking hang on a second but the people I'm pastoring and many of them and then I began looking at some of the examples and thinking wow this is it and I think at the time it was very new to me I hadn't I hadn't come across the, the idea before and ever since then I've, I've occasionally been asked by people like what do you think is what and somebody asked me at one point i think what's a big sort of pressing pastoral issue for the next generation and i i said basically this i said i think the fact that there are an awful lot of people are not going to have the jobs that they currently do and those jobs disappearing to present us with all sort of pastoral challenges and i was just wondering in, in two books I've read in the last month which made me think very differently about this question I read George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier which is a sort of study of uh, mining communities in the 1930s which Orwell wrote and then explained why given how terrible those conditions are and how poor they all are, everybody should be socialists, but they're not because socialism is made ridiculous by the people who advocate it is basically his argument, whether you agree with it or not. And then also reading, um, uh, you know, 80 years later, David Goodhart's book, the road to somewhere in which he talks about the somewheres and the anywheres and the fact that the world is run by anywheres, but most people are somewheres, at least in the West and how that sheds light on Brexit and Trump and all sorts of other things and both of those books in different ways seem to be shedding some light on the the extent to which people are we have as a society basically said it doesn't matter we are prioritizing economic growth we are prioritizing effectively affluence and but ultimately having done that for a long time people conclude oh, but this isn't actually what makes people really happy and that there's an awful lot of social problems that come if you pursue that above everything else. Some people get very rich and else. And obviously it's the sort of standard critique, but it was interesting now seeing that coming from a a sort of socialist direction, a liberal leftish direction in a British context now, and then even Tucker Carlson saying the same thing. And then the, the Atlantic piece we're talking about, I'm just wondering how much truth do you think there is in that, that there is something endemic to capitalism that is creating this problem and that somewhere somebody either has to say, this is not the best model for promoting human flourishing. And how far do you think we're stuck with that? There's no way you can even ask that question because it's always going to be true. And therefore, we need to work pastoral responses to. I know that's a very long way of, res- of asking that question, but how much. No, I think that's the exactly problem? the right um, Is there question. anything you can do?
0: You know, so. Um I wouldn't, of course, say that capitalism is fundamentally the problem. I think that, you know, uh, we're made much better off by a market-based economy, of course. But then I think, you know, there's some real nuance in the questions that you ask. And I'm often in, you know, policy discussions in Washington, D.C. and other places. And I've recently heard people from both the left and the right reflect on um, the displacement of jobs that – was uh, happened as a result of China's recent rise um you know so this is something that's been really well studied, and just uh China very quickly uh, increased its manufacturing capability, and then we've seen what that's done to employment across the United states and that's been widely studied, like I said we you know upon reflection, people are saying, you know maybe we should have put the brakes on that a little bit, you know maybe we should not have had you know such unfettered free trade. And then looking forward to thinking about things like driverless cars. I think policymakers on all sides of the aisles are saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't just let technology run, you know, rain unfettered, but maybe we should slow the brakes, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, with different, you know, you know, regulatory hurdles, etc. Why would we do that? It's because. That would you know preserve some of these jobs. It would mean that we're not at peak efficiency, but as you point out, there's things other than efficiency that we care about in the economy. We care about people. And you know, we care about you know potentially income distributions and other things. And we need to have all of those in mind as we're talking about economic policies.
1: Hmm. Uh Diane, can I can, on, on driverless cars? I mean, in terms of possible responses to the techno capitalism that we have because it seems like that's part of the problem it's it's uh, a market economy that's been wedded with a certain understanding of technology that is unstoppable it seems like um i i saw a delightful story about the citizens of Chandler Arizona uh, where uh, i believe Uber and Google and a number of other companies are testing their driverless cars um and the citizens of Chandler, Arizona, were running around throwing rocks at these cars and uh, <laughs> oh jumping gosh. out of bushes and beating them with baseball bats. You know, with ski masks on, um, uh, and some of for some good reasons, a driverless car almost hit uh, a child uh, while the child was in the street playing. And so there's there's a, a kind of it's one of these. Uh, uh pressure valve type situations where it's a fringe that's doing this obviously you know college age guys being somewhat rebellious, but it's an interesting reaction against a certain kind of um technological development. Do we need to worry about no I want you to play profit for a second do do we need to worry about the, that that kind of social unrest and upheaval um becoming sort of more frequent or more common in the future. Um, And do you think that the rise of uh, sort of far leftist economics in terms of policy in the States is part of a a kind of deep reaction against this alienation that people have from this, this order that we live within?
0: I mean, it's a great question. I think you know, none of us can know the the future all that well. Uh, an issue that comes up with technology, though, is that people really like it. You know, we like our technology. We, I, you know, we spend so much time on our on our phones. We seem to just have a different reaction. You know, when we talk about slowing down that that kind of stuff, there are you can imagine there are all sorts of exciting ideas about driverless cars. I would love for my kids to never, you know, get a driver's license, you know, and not have to worry about that. Uh, You know, so I just think these things are complicated, but, you know, I think for sure we'll see more pushback, you know, probably still just on the fringes because, you know, because so many of the possibilities are really exciting but we need to think about that. You know, same with, you know, remember, Amazon says that basically today they could deliver my packages with drones, but we don't let them, right? And so it's, you know, sort of the same the same issue. We're making choices to regulate technology, you know, for other reasons.
1: Yeah, and I do think that the best instance of resistance to the use of certain technologies is still um, cell phones on airplanes, which we could do but there still yeah. seems to be massive aversion to that um thank goodness because it would be
3: genuinely I terrible i have never heard that that is really interesting that as in we could easily do it but if someone's decided this is just going to be ruinous for the experience so we're not going to let people do it
0: yeah as if you I, could make flights worse that's right <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right
2: baby baby in one seat businessman in the next handling is handling everything Oh man, that would be, that would be terrible. Um, Yeah. One question I wanted to ask you, uh, this is maybe just, well, it's connected. So read that recent proposal. uh, Again, it was the Atlantic. uh, Oren Cass, Oren Cass's recent work kind of arguing for focusing on, on uh, production, not consumption, kind of an economy based on, on workers, not, I I was, I, this was just my wanting to ask, is that, do you think any of that proposal, any of that, have you read that? And if so, is it, is it useful? Is it helpful? Um, I, you know, this is just a, should I read some of this to, to follow up on this?
0: Yeah, I think that um, I, I have not followed this sort of debate that they're having on the on the right about this all that closely. I know that um, my friend Michael Strain at the American Enterprise Institute um, has been engaged with sort of back and forth with Oren Cass. I think he's concerned that Oren wants to go way too far in terms of this. And you know, we you know, as I pushed back before, we we do think that you know, market capitalism is a you know very effective and efficient system. The question is, you know, how far do we want to go to to slow that down, to regulate that, in order to have, you know, other aspects like distributional impacts, um, employment impacts, also brought brought to the fore for this. So I'd say, you know, Rita, we we can certainly debate uh, debate more, but this is a fine line to walk. It's a really fine line to walk. But of course, then it makes me want to pivot to. You know, but then what has this done to the family? And so I thought that the uh, Wilcox and Hammond reflection on Tucker Carlson was really uh, was really very interesting. And you know, we've certainly seen you know again over the last thirty or so years um, rates of marriage decline. This isn't just you know divorce going up; it's sort of people who are never getting married in the first place. We're seeing more and more babies born out of wedlock. Uh, you know, who'll never be. Uh, you know, in a marital uh, family, and many of these things we think are were caused by these these economic trends. That you know, basically, you know sort of an economic model of marriage, which may or not be offensive to um, to us as Christians. You know, is that you know, sort of we um, come together to, to pool resources, and a lot of times that involves uh, you know one partner deciding to you know focus on home production and stay at home, the other focus on market production and bring in wages. And as we've seen more women, you know, joining the labor force, more men dropping out. That's really, you know, and wages being stagnant. That's really put some pressure on this. Uh, The economists would have all predicted that uh, marriage rates would go down and divorce would go up. And, you know, based on these, these factors, then it's sure what we're seeing.
1: Diane, on that, on that point about the family, um, you know, I've I've told a causal story about the decline of the family for many years that involves things like the liberalization of divorce laws and um, the uh, the causal story is is much about sort of law and sexual desires and the sexual revolution and that sort of thing and and where economics is a is a secondary theme to it. Um, the story that you just distilled is not it's it's compatible with the the kind of culture war story that is common in say conservative evangelical circles um i wonder i wonder what you think the outcome of bringing those stories together should be for how christians think and speak about uh christian households um are there challenges or ways in which um churches and pastors should be Challenging their uh, uh, church members to arrange their Christian households to attend to some of the economic dimensions of the the the, the fragmentation of the family.
0: Oh, that's good questions. I would love to hear you, um, the reflections of all of you all before I weigh in. <laughs> <laughs> the theologians th- should reflect first, right? It's well. well it's, uh. So uh, let me run
1: the thought that I've I've had about this um, past you, which is something like um, one of the things that uh, has gone on with the delaying of marriage and so on is um, just a, a lot of mobility in um, middle and upper middle class uh, communities of young people, right? And that's combined with. Uh, a conception of the christian household that is pretty Im- impermeable it's not porous um, and so one thing that I have uh, thought about moving some of my writing and arguing to is is defending a, a or articulating that a Christian household that is deliberately porous that has um, boundaries that can be easily permeated by mobile transient uh, millennial quote unquote Uh, people who need family formation in an actual family, but maybe in a city for, you know, a year or two years, um, rather than going into an apartment entering. So like, those are some of the ways in which I've thought about, uh, talking about the shape of a Christian household in this kind of environment. But I don't, I don't, there's obviously much more to be said on that.
2: Um, let me let me uh, let me complicate that just a little bit, and then I'm going to ask Diane uh, again. The, the, it's the been so simple until though. now,
3: Derek. The whole thing is just so staringly obvious. I really needed it complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, well,
2: uh, my thought is just that, that Matt's Matt's question Matt's question presumes um, kind of mobile, semi upper class, uh, upper middle, uh, lower upper. Class kind of millennials who are moving for you know city jobs and that sort of thing, and uh transient and so forth. But a lot of the marriage fall off and the and, and the decline, uh, uh, and out of wedlock births, and a lot that, that's happening in, in non mobile, uh, lower middle class, lower class communities for the most part. Like, the, most of the people who are you know going to college and getting the job and Waiting to have a kid before they get married, you know that the success cycle they talk about—they're uh, doing everything later. But if they're following that pattern, they're economically and work-wise doing better. Uh, that the challenge seems to be more in um, uh, yet lower middle class, uh, lower class communities where uh, it's not this isn't happening because they're because they're mobile. It, it's happening for other reasons, and they're out of work, and they, they, like they're pointing out. The, the marriage marriages are being uh, delayed or not happening at all for reasons other than oh we're, we're we're leaving to find a job or something like that and that's where I'm I'm kind of wondering about the church and its work in those communities creating uh, structures or um, discipling marriages or discipling like, like creating a marriage culture. And this is where that there's that that weird tension that um, people have talked in recent times about, like this simultaneous um, idolatry of the family in certain Christian communities, and that's I get what that's doing, and it's true to some. People can focus the family unit to the point where it excludes others, but at the same time, marriage culture broadly uh, in the sucks. Like, you know, that was one of the things that the, that the Wilcox article was talking about. Elites in, in, in society and elites in culture, it, it actually is – even the people who are getting married and doing all the traditionalist kind of things, uh, are, they're not publicly saying anything to support those sorts of practices. And so um, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm wondering more what are constructive roles besides – what besides – Preaching and teaching about uh, marriage culture and the importance of marriage and all that sort of thing in the churches uh, should 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 we be doing? Or um, if you have any thoughts about the particular challenges for those for those uh, lower class, lower middle class communities, and the way churches can think creatively to help and support them, that's kind of where I'm just throwing the question a bit.
0: And I I think you're exactly right. We you know even though we see. A lot of um, you know delay in marriage and um, you know sort of uh, promiscuity among you know college students. You know that's where I spend my days, so I see that there's a lot of hookup culture, etc. Uh, the, uh, the statistics are they're still getting married and they're staying married. And you know I think Richard Reeves had this fantastic book about dream hoarders and where he put forward a theory about why that happens. So I agree with Derek that this issue that I think the church needs to be taking much more seriously, and that Tucker Carlson brought up, is about People without college degrees, um, by by and large, something that um, I think compli- really complicates the um, the economic story on the sort of the economic re- you know explanation for the decline and points to the need for. Um, you know, cultural change, which I think the church needs to be a leader of, uh, is the mm. following recent interesting study, which is, you know, so we've um, you know, seen things go the one direction that when men's wages go down, uh, they get married less. Uh, and uh, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a, a coal boom in Appalachia, which um, gave a big increase to men's wages. And at the time, what they saw was marriage rates went up. Right, because I think our culture in the 70s and 80s uh, prized marriage. Then fast forward to today, um, there have been studies of the fracking boom, which similarly has increased wages for men without college degrees. It's increased employment for men without college degrees. And what we find is that they have more children, but they don't get married more. So um, Hmm. non-marital births go up, Um, you know, marriage doesn't decline, but it doesn't increase. And the economists would have predicted that marriage rates would have increased when men's economic opportunities get, you know, increase as well. So that to me points to there's been a major cultural shift between the 1970s, 80s, and today. And, you know, that's where I think that you know, Wilcox and Hammond really, I think, nail this, you know, that we need to be doing more to help others get and stay married. And what that looks like, um, I don't, you know, it's it's hard to know. There's got to be a lot of experimentation, yeah. um, but the church has got to be on the forefront of that, I would think. Yeah. Could I ask as a sort of,
3: this might be our last the last question we have time for, I'm not sure, but if you could if you could you had a captive audience of pastors which to some degree you may do um and you've probably done this a lot uh, what is one thing that you would want someone like me so i'm a you know pastor in a church in london and in a kind of fit you know not particularly booming part of london but it's a very affluent city but i've also worked in a sort of much more middle class town where things are you know a very normal cross-section i suppose of britain and i guess the same would be true in the states what's one thing that i should be doing do you think that if you've sort of look at things i wish the church you know it easy to say Say that, you know, the church should do this, but actually a local church, not just the universal church, but ordinary people who are trying to pastor people through this over the next generation or two, any kind of, if you had to say one or two things, you think, I think that the church would flourish more and help people
0: flourish more if we did this, what would it be? Yeah, I think it's gotta be outreach to these non-employed people, men mostly. Um, because, right? You know, as we talked about before, right? They're they're not flourishing. We're um, created to work. They're depressed. They're playing video games, etc. Like that's when you know the light of the gospel needs to be you know uh, you know preached to them. And you know, my concern is that uh, you know many people who need this message aren't coming through the door in the first place. Um, the you know, that's a question for you. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that, you know, but a lot of times when you look around, you know, it's, it's only after you've gotten married, you know, and gotten the job that you feel like I can go to church, which, um, is not, I think how I, our Lord wanted it.
2: No, no, that, that's great. That's great. Um, this was, this was really encouraging. I think we are going to wrap up here though, Diane and, uh, just want to say thanks for coming on. This was uh, really informative, uh, really useful. I I, I hope I know our listeners will benefit from that, so I uh, appreciate that.
3: Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's really helpful. Yeah.
2: Um, for our listeners, uh, before we go, just a general reminder. Uh, well, first off, thanks for listening. Uh, second, if you want to, especially if you're one of our Patreon supporters, uh, thank you for continuing to support. It helps keep the lights on, pay for our sound editing and so forth. So this doesn't sound terrible like it used to, um, among other things. Uh, but if you want to follow up with any of this, we have, uh, links and show notes at MureOrthodoxy.com. You can rate and review us at iTunes. Uh, or subscribe there, subscribe at SoundCloud if you want to keep up with these episodes. Uh, But for now, uh, thank you, and we'll catch you next time.